0: You'll recall that in the early 1900s, the United States threw Korea under the bus by making a secret pact with Japan that led to Korea being turned into a virtual slave state. How does that relate to the current North Korean nuclear crisis? Well, if the U.S. had said no to Japan in the first place and taken Korea under America's wing, we probably would not even have a North Korea today, much less a nuclear-armed Kim Jong-un regime. All of Korea might well have become a one-nation ally of the United States. This episode will explore how we let all of that slip through our hands. This story is in some ways a lesson in what can happen when a great power fails to stand up to a bully and ends up paying the price later on. Others may disagree with that and can argue the point back and forth, but the facts are As I reported in Episode 1, the U.S. in the early 1900s made a secret deal with Japan to allow the Japanese to take control of Korea in exchange for Japan keeping its hands off of the Philippines, which was a de facto American colony. Japan took control of Korea and ruled it with an iron fist for 40 years. During that time, the U.S. thought it had an understanding with Japan. Each would play nice and not interfere with one another's areas of influence in the Pacific. Then, on December 7th, 1941. From the NBC Newsroom in New York, President Roosevelt said in a statement today that the Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor, Hawaii from the air. I'll repeat that. President Roosevelt says that the Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor in Hawaii from the air. The Japanese were expanding their empire, and bombed Pearl Harbor in the hopes of preventing the U.S. Navy from rushing across the Pacific to give immediate help to victims of Japanese aggression. And it worked. Only two days after attacking Pearl, Japan invaded the Philippines. America's Asiatic fleet in the Philippines had no Air Force cover, and were ordered by the U.S. to withdraw to a safer location some 70,000 of the American and Filipino soldiers who stayed and tried to defend Baton Province at the gateway to Manila Bay were captured and forced to endure the Baton Death March, during which an estimated 10,000 died. Remember, Pearl Harbor and the devastation in the Philippines came after the United States had taken Japan at its word that it would not oppose the U.S. presence in the Philippines and would not be hostile to America. All of that empty promise in exchange for Japan being allowed to occupy Korea. By August of 1945, Japan appeared to be on the edge of losing the war. Thus Korea was on the edge of freedom from Japanese occupation. But the Japanese leadership was divided over whether to surrender, even after that August six, U.S. bombing at Hiroshima that killed at least 80,000 people almost immediately, plus another 60,000 dead after suffering through radiation poisoning. Some of the war dead were presumably from Korea. Hundreds of thousands of Koreans had been forced to live in Japan as laborers, and hundreds of thousands more women were forced to be sex slaves to Japanese soldiers and officials despite that horrific shock of the Hiroshima bomb, still no surrender, in part because Japan held out hope that the Soviet Union might come to their aid. How might that happen? Well, the Soviets did have a non-aggression pact with Japan, and never lifted a finger against Japanese forces as the war in the Pacific raged for nearly four years, it was only in the closing days of the war that the Soviets sent some troops across their border into the northern part of Japanese-occupied Korea. Perhaps, hoped Japan, Stalin was preparing to help the Japanese defend Korea against America. Perhaps the Soviets would issue an ultimatum to the U.S. As it turns out, Joseph Stalin had already promised the U.S.-led allies in Europe that he would also help the U.S. out in the Pacific after the European war was over, and that time had come. Of course, we now know that Stalin had some chips to cash in from the European war and wanted to help himself to a chunk of Korea he could use for commerce or other reasons. Between the bombing of Hiroshima on August 6, 1945, and the second bombing at Nagasaki on August 9. The Soviets declared war on Japan. But the narrative in the U.S. was that American atomic power had made the difference.
1: It took two atomic bombs to bring Japan to her knees, but now Pearl Harbor was avenged, and the news triggered the greatest celebration
0: the nation has ever known. Expert opinion varies as to whether it was the Soviet intervention in the closing hours of the war. Or the U.S. atomic bomb or both that made the Japanese surrender. But this much we do know for sure. The fate of Korea was about to change. Let's hear now from Evans Revere, a Korean expert at the Brookings Institute.
2: In an important sense, uh, Korea was a bit of a sideshow uh, at the very end of World War II. Korea, the Korean Peninsula, uh, had been obviously occupied by Japan early in the 20th century. Uh, Korea was then made part of the Japanese Empire, and from the perspective of a number of Americans uh, and American allies, uh, Korea was uh, part and parcel of an enemy state that had just been defeated, uh, since it had been an actual part of the Japanese Empire, uh, and. Uh, It took a while for Americans to fully develop uh, an understanding uh, that Korea uh, was once and should be again uh, an independent uh, country, uh, that while the Koreans had been part of the Japanese Empire, were citizens of the Japanese Empire, they had their own ambitions uh, to once again uh, be a, a free and independent country. Uh, and that, uh, one of the missions of the United States was to, to enable that process. But that process was somewhat hampered by the fact, uh, well, tremendously hampered by the fact that, uh, an agreement was made between the United States and the Soviet Union, uh, to divide the peninsula, uh, not for political reasons, uh, but for the purposes of accepting the Japanese surrender, uh, in August of 1945 with the Soviet Union, uh, taking the Japanese surrender in the northern part of the peninsula and the United States taking the surrender in the southern part of the peninsula. Uh, there began the uh, uh, the division of the peninsula in a, in a very practical and fundamental sense. And that division uh, became hardened when uh, each one of the Koreas uh, had its own uh, elections and elected its, its own uh, distinct government. And then of course, the Korean War, uh, when that happened, uh, locked all of this uh, basically in stone for the for the next uh, almost 70 years.
0: Let's unpack some of those developments that made Korea what it is today as we approach the Trump Kim summit 2. We'll take a closer look at those crucial moments in the birth of the nations of North and South Korea and ponder what might have been. Okay, now we're back in time at that point when Soviet troops and Soviet bureaucrats are about to start pouring over the northern border into Korea with US consent and begin running crash courses in how to set up your own country like our communist Soviet Union. Washington needed to draw a line somewhere a line to determine how much of Korea the Soviets would help rebuild and how much territory America could handle. You are about to hear the incredible story of how America split Korea into almost equal halves despite the Soviets not having done any heavy lifting in the Pacific War and despite an almost total lack of intel or research into Soviet policy toward Korea. There is a lesson here and it shouldn't be hard to spot. Here's what happened. The job of selecting that critically strategic line of zones was turned over to two young colonels in the planning division of the War Department. One of them was Charles Tick Bonesteel. The other was Dean Rusk, who would years later become Secretary of State for Presidents Kennedy and Johnson. But in 1949, on that late night of August 14th, Washington time, only hours after Japan had announced it would surrender, Tick Dean Rusk sat down with the one and only research tool they had available at the moment, an ordinary map of the world. I will now read an excerpt from Dean Rusk's autobiography called As I Saw It. Quote Working in haste and under great pressure, we had a formidable task to pick a zone for the American occupation. End of quote. Remember that Rusk, on behalf of America, was not in charge of splitting Korea into two new nations, but merely to assign zones of occupation, or reconstruction, within a single, unified Korea to be temporarily controlled by the U.S. and Soviet Union. Courtesy of the Richard B. Russell Library for Political Research and Studies at the University of Georgia, we pick up the story with Rusk speaking on audio tape about that fateful night.
1: Well, we looked at the map and thought that it would be a
0: good idea if Seoul, the capital of Korea, were in our zone of occupation. But we knew that the army would not want us to go very far beyond that, and so we looked north of Korea, and there was no clearly distinguishing geographic feature, but there was a the
1: 38th parallel. And so uh, we came back and suggested that.
0: His American bosses agreed, and so did the Soviets. Here's how Dean Rusk described it. Actually, they accepted the 38th parallel with alacrity. Mm -hmm. Alacrity, as the Cambridge English Dictionary confirms, means with speed and eagerness, or speed and interest. And no wonder, here again is Dean Rusk. What none of us there at that meeting from the State Department or the Army knew,
1: was that earlier in the century there had been discussions between the Russians and the Japanese about a division of a sphere of influence in Korea along the 38th parallel. Had we done that we would have selected any other dividing line.
0: There was of course no internet, no Google to provide instant access to historic details, much less Soviet policy. America naively offered the Soviets what they had long wanted. In fact, they may have offered Stalin even more than he dreamed he could get. According to some historians, Russia had gone on record long before World War II as being willing to accept far less than America had offered. Here is Charles Armstrong, professor of history at Columbia University, who describes Russian-Japanese talks on Korea that began in 1896. Uh, There had been secret negotiations uh, at that time in St. Petersburg to divide Korea into a a Russian sphere of influence and a Japanese sphere of influence uh, along the 39th parallel. That haggling lasted several years. On the 3rd of October, 1903, the Russian minister to Japan, Baron Roman Roman Romanovich Rosen, reportedly sent a proposal to the Japanese government which included the following language. Mutual engagement to consider that part of the territory of Korea lying to the north of the 39th parallel, as a neutral zone into which neither of the contracting parties shall introduce troops. Note the words, neither party shall introduce troops. That did not preclude that the Russians might want to use the northernmost part of Korea for commerce and trade. At any rate, Japan said no thanks, and took all of Korea for itself and held it for 40 years until defeat by America at the end of World War II. Some historians and analysts believe that Russia's earlier willingness to accept the 39th parallel should have alerted the U.S. to Soviet thinking back in 1945. Back to Professor Armstrong at Columbia University. He points out that the Koreans themselves were given little or no choice and still deeply resent being divided by foreign powers something the U.S. president might want to keep in mind at summit two. That Korea has a long and proud history of being a unified nation. They don't want any other power to divide them. And this has been tried once before. And if you know, if you want to get on the good side of the Koreans, you don't tell them that the country is going to be cut in half. Uh, a much better approach would have been to share in the occupation of Korea with the Soviets, because that seemed to be inevitable, but in a way that wouldn't divide the country in half and wouldn't lead to then the creation of two separate governments, which is what happened within a year. 38th or 39th? What's the big deal about parallels, you might ask? North Korea was going to happen anyway, right? And the Soviets were probably going to make it happen. Actually, there could have been a significant difference. Remember, the measure of latitude is up and down the globe between North and the South Pole, like a ladder. One degree latitude from the 38th to the 39th parallel means 69 miles further north. That's more than 10% of the entire length of North and South Korea combined. Also, depending upon which sources you're checking, Penanyang, the capital of North Korea, sits pretty much on the 39th parallel that would have given South Korea today the huge advantage of breathing down Kim Jong-un's neck instead of the current situation in which North Korean forces have the potential to storm into the South Korean capital, Seoul, within minutes. We'll never know if the Soviets in 1945 would have accepted the 39th parallel as their slice of Korea if young Colonel Dean Rusk had been alert to Russian history. Besides, as we heard earlier, the U.S. just wanted to bring its troops home after World War II, not send them deeper into Korea. Decisions had to be made on information available at the time. Let's hear now from retired Lieutenant General Chan-in-bum, a decorated South Korean Army veteran and authority on Korean politics and military
1: relations. <laughs> It's frustrating to hear that kind of uh, history. Uh, but like you said, uh, being a military a man being having been in, in, in government, having been in situations like that, uh, you know people make those kinds of decisions every day. Look at the Middle East, how the Middle East is divided into countries that have total disregard for history, uh, tribal relations, Uh, You know, all of that. So Korea at that time had the misfortune to uh, be in that situation. But you mentioned the 39th parallel, but it could, you know, maybe it could have been the 37th parallel. Who who would would know? But uh, it is what it is. He was looking at the map. He saw a line which divided the Korean peninsula pretty much evenly, and he thought it was a good idea. Here again is
0: Professor Evans Revere of Brookings.
2: Well, at that point, uh, in the minds of many, uh, since the Cold War was still in its earliest days, uh, Korea did not, in the minds of many uh, American experts, including many in our military, did not mean a lot militarily. Uh, That, of course, changed pretty quickly five years later. But the, the immediate task, if I was on the ground or part of MacArthur's staff or MacArthur himself, Uh, at that point was, of course, demobilizing uh, those Japanese troops, getting them off the peninsula, and then uh, working with Korean authorities to stabilize the political and economic situation uh, to uh, assist them in uh, forming uh, their own government uh, and in dealing with the complications of the fact that you now had a, a, a divided peninsula uh, with a, uh, an increasingly hostile Soviet Union uh, occupying the northern part of it and very obviously making every effort uh, to uh, give birth uh, on the northern part of the peninsula to a, uh, uh, an ally of the Soviet Union and a potentially hostile power. So that was the, uh, that was the initial task for MacArthur and his occupying forces uh, and uh, he was doing all of this sort of by remote control uh, from Tokyo with a fairly minimal uh, US military presence. Uh, most people seem to forget that the, uh, the number of American military advisors was in the dozens or maybe in the hundreds, depending on what period you're talking about. Uh, during this time, we had no significant military presence and certainly no significant combat presence at this point until the outbreak of the Korean War. Before I wrap up this
0: episode, allow me to mention that there is a special bonus interview about the Korean division with Dr. Mark P. Berry, an independent Asian analyst who has followed the Korean story for 22 years. Dr. Berry offers some great insights, and I urge you to keep listening after this episode and catch his bonus interview. I want to thank my guest, Evans Revere of the Brookings Institute. Professor Charles Armstrong of Columbia University, General chanin the veteran Korean military and political expert, and, of course, Dr. Mark P. Berry. Now, the wrap-up. We are exploring Korean history, which is highly relevant today. As the old saying goes, it's easier to see where you're going if you can see clearly where you have been. Coming up in Episode 3 of The Korea Story That Never Told You, I'll take us through a series of stunning U.S. miscalculations. In some cases, no calculations at all that led to a Korean War which might have been prevented. Well, That's it for now. I hope you'll share and tune in next time. For now, I'm Mike Lee. Bye-bye.